Well, we've come to the main message portion of our service now, and we're going to open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. This uh, message is going to involve a prophecy that Jesus gave from the Mount of Olives. He was on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, so it's normally referred to as the Olivet Prophecy. It has the word olive there from Mount of Olives, O-L-I-V-E-T, Olivet, the Olivet Prophecy. As we begin, let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, once again, as we open our Bibles now, we just pray that you give us the ability to read and to understand, not just with head knowledge, but to take your word to heart. And Father, we know that Jesus was speaking at a crucial time here, not only in his life, but in the age of the world, so to speak. So Father, help us to understand the importance of this transition period and uh, what it means for us today. So thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now this, uh, I'll just be upfront with you. This message is probably going to take two weeks. Uh, this will be part one. We'll call it part one. And this uh, message today is also going to involve a video a little bit later in the uh, sermon, which we will see here on the screen. So in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 37, This is just before Jesus went into Jerusalem to be uh, taken prisoner, to be uh, taken by the Jewish and the Roman authorities and eventually put to death as we read through the story over the past couple of months of his death, burial, resurrection, and then eventually his ascension. But just before these final days, Jesus realized that he was reaching a crucial point in history, that things were going to change dramatically, starting with his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, but also another event that was really a major event in history, and certainly for our understanding and our understanding of God's plan for the whole human race. Jesus is filled with I don't know what what word could be used to describe how he felt sadness, regret for the city of Jerusalem and for the people there. He says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus knew what was awaiting him about his death and crucifixion. But he says this to the city of Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem. He mourns for the coming destruction of Jerusalem. So he says here that Israel is guilty in rejecting all of God's messengers that were sent to them throughout the ages, starting with the Old Testament prophets. They rejected all of the messengers that God had sent to them to warn them. And now they've rejected the appeal of God's last and greatest messenger, Jesus. And now judgment must come on them. Notice he says in verse 38, He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He says, look, your house is left to you desolate. 
So no longer is it God's house. God has moved away from them because of their sinfulness. He says, your house, and it's going to be desolate. It's going to be destroyed as well as abandoned by God. So Jesus is not being vindictive here. He's being sorrowful about it. And then he says, uh, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that was how he was brought into the city, remember, on Palm Sunday by his Galilean followers. They were all saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Unfortunately, most of the people of Jerusalem didn't agree with that and they didn't join in. So what Jesus is saying here is only when Jerusalem is gonna be ready to echo that welcome to him, could they ever hope to see him again, if and when they ever get to that point. He didn't say when this would happen, if at all, but that's his final words to the people of Jerusalem. So let's read now in chapter 24. This is where we begin the Olivet Prophecy, which starts off by describing uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and what's going to happen. Now the destruction of Jerusalem continued over probably a four year period from 66 AD to 70 AD. So of course it was to be brought about by the Roman legions that entered into the Holy Land at that time, and they were the ones who destroyed Jerusalem. So it says here that Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. So the temple was very grand at this time. They were recently rebuilt by Herod, and the temple area was really one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a beautiful complex, a magnificent complex. But Jesus says in verse two, do you see all these things, he asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So that was a shocking statement to to the disciples. The disciples go on to ask him a question here. Verse three, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, So they moved away from the city, now across the way to the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? This destruction of the the temple and destruction of Jerusalem. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, the disciples mistakenly assumed that the destruction of the temple was going to bring about the second coming of Jesus. But they were wrong. The destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem was going to happen in approximately 40 years. And Jesus' second coming was going to happen much later. So Jesus goes ahead and begins to instruct them about this destruction of Jerusalem. In other words, what's going to happen from the day they're speaking to the day that the destruction is complete about 40 years later. Now, don't forget, Jesus sees the destruction of Jerusalem as signaling a great transition in the world from the present age that they were living in into a new era of human history, elsewhere called the last days. So really, when you look at the Bible 
uh, definition of the last days, it began with Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the beginning of the last days, as far as the Bible is concerned. So when somebody says to you, are we living in the last days? Absolutely. But it started almost 2,000 years ago. But that's the age that we're living in now. Jesus realizes that this new age that is about to be ushered in now, the last days are not going to end immediately, as the apostles thought. Rather, it's going to go on for an, an indeterminately long stretch of time. So we're still living in the last days today. The last days will begin with Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and sending the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, following, followed by the destruction of Jerusalem. Then will come a very long period of time which will conclude with Jesus' second coming when he returns in glory. So verse 4 now, they said, well, when's this going to happen? This destruction of the, the temple and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus begins to talk about the destruction of the temple. So he says here in verse 4, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. So Jesus is talking now about the events that will occur immediately following his death, resurrection, and ascension, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, if you look ahead to verse 34, he says here, I tell you the truth, this generation will not certainly pass away until all these things have happened. So, verse 34, going backwards in this chapter, he's explaining what's going to happen to this generation leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So he's not talking about our day right here. He's talking about their day as Jesus was speaking to them right there and then leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. So many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. And it's true, history tells us that there were false messiahs that came along. They didn't think that Jesus was the true messiah, so other men came along claiming to be the messiah. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. So from the day Jesus is speaking to the apostles leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, all these things did happen. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And certainly he's including the time when the church began in Pentecost. And we read in the book of Acts, you know, Stephen was one of the first martyrs of the church. So the church continued to be persecuted and believers continued to be martyred and put to death. He says, you will be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. So all these things happen during this period of time. So Jesus is instructing them, be ready for the long haul here. You know, from the day I leave you and ascend up into heaven, all these things are going to begin to happen. During the 40 years leading up to 70 AD, 
many Jewish rebels set themselves up as false messiahs, leaders. There were also wars and natural disasters, but they weren't signs of Jesus' return. Also, the church is going to be persecuted during this time, not only by Jewish leaders, but by all nations, because the church is going to be spreading throughout different nations. Jesus warned the church not to let difficult conditions affect their love for one another, their endurance, and their faithful preaching of the gospel. He says in verse 12, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. Now, the whole world at this time, as they knew it, was all the area around the Mediterranean Sea. That was pretty much the world as they knew it then. And yeah, the gospel had been preached. By 70 AD, it was preached throughout all that part of the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place, he's talking about the temple now, the abomination that causes desolation. Now, what in the world is that? Well, that harkens back to a scripture in Daniel. I won't turn there, but Daniel 11, verse 31. Daniel used this expression, the abomination that causes desolation. He was describing a statue that a foreign leader set up in the Jerusalem temple when it was desecrated in 167 B.C., the man was at Antiochus Epiphanes. So Jesus is predicting a similar event that would be a sign to God's people to flee Jerusalem while they can. He says something's going to happen. It's going to be an abomination in the temple. So many historians feel that it had to do with the Roman armies, not only surrounding the city of Jerusalem, but eventually as they moved in, they brought in all of their gear, uh, set up all of their standards inside the temple. And as far as God was concerned, that was an abomination. And certainly the people felt that way too. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, and of course the desolation was going to be the destruction of Jerusalem. Spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So he's not talking about the second coming of Jesus when the whole world is going to be freaking out. He's talking about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And that's why he says when these things start to happen, if you're living in Judea, you better head for the mountains because very difficult times are coming. He says, let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. Time is going to be of the essence. There's going to be a limited amount of time to skedaddle to get out of town because there's going to be a time when nobody's going to be able to leave anymore and everybody's going to be put to the sword how dreadful verse 19 it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the sabbath because everybody at that time in judea was keeping the sabbath and you know the uh the more strict religious sect would close the the gates of the city and nobody could get out so if the time to flee came on the Sabbath day, you were trapped inside the city. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or there he is, 
do not believe it. So the time of chaos is going to provide the opportunity for more religious imposters who could even produce signs and miracles, but Christians should not be quick to be impressed by such things or by claims that Jesus had returned secretly to a hiding place. That's crazy talk. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So when Jesus comes at his second coming, there'll be no question in anybody's mind. Everybody will see it, everybody will be aware, everybody will know what it is. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. In other words, Jesus' return will be witnessed by all, just as the presence of vultures indicates that a carcass is nearby, so there will be nothing secret about the eventual return of the Son of Man when that happens. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, these verses here are often misunderstood as referring to Jesus' second coming. The words in this section are almost entirely from Old Testament prophecies. And what Jesus is saying by quoting these prophecies, for example, where he says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, that's taken from Isaiah 13, verse 10. And it's actually talking about a time that pagan nations were falling, that it's a time of upheaval in the world. And that was just one way that the Old Testament prophets pictured it. And then it's, it says here, the stars will fall from the sky. That's taken from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And it's actually talking about the time when Jesus ascended up to heaven to receive his reward after his ascension into heaven verse 30 at that time the son the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn so according to the book of daniel that's a prophecy of jesus death resurrection and ascension up to heaven he goes on to say and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So, again, this is referring not to Jesus' second coming, but referring to these events that are about to transpire and the upheaval that's to take place. And it was just Old Testament ways of describing some of the disaster and the loss of life and the great changes taking place on the face of the earth. He finally says in verse 32, now learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all of these things begin to happen, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation, the one he's speaking to right there and then, will certainly not pass away till all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay, at this time, we're gonna go ahead and show a, a short video, 15 minutes, and it's about the fall of Jerusalem and some comments made by Jewish historians, evidence of the destruction of Jerusalem. 
spring of the year 70 CE, Titus marches his legions from the coastal plain to Jerusalem. He's boiling with anger. It has been four years and the Roman army has not succeeded in suppressing the stubborn revolt that broke out in Judea. The Jews fight courageously for every piece of land. Even the esteemed commander Vespasian, Titus' father, could not defeat them. Now, after his father's appointment to emperor, it's Titus' turn to manage the campaign. He commands the most powerful war machine in the world. Tens of thousands of trained legionnaires, equipped with advanced weapons, sophisticated breaching tools, and lethal artillery. Against the mighty Roman army stands a small force of fighters who will fight for their freedom until their last drop of blood. The final battle of the great revolt against Rome begins. It will be a battle that will never be forgotten. In the dark of night, Titus brings up his soldiers from three directions to Jerusalem. As dawn breaks on the 14th of Nisan, the eve of Passover, the residents of Jerusalem awaken to a sight that makes their blood run cold. 60,000 Roman soldiers, thirsty for war, surround the city from every direction. Only now, when the Romans stand at the gates of the city, does the tragedy caused by the civil war raging in the city become clear. In clashes between the various factions, whole sections of Jerusalem were destroyed. Stores of food that could have provided vital provisions during the fighting and siege went up in flames and vanished. Too late, the rebels joined forces against the true enemy. What they lack in weaponry and soldiers will be reinforced by acts of bravery and unrestrained daring. The Jews take the initiative and respond quickly. They attack ferociously before the Romans take up positions. The surprised Romans scatter in all directions. Titus himself escapes by the skin of his teeth. Before the Romans manage to recover, the Jews retreat behind the mighty defenses of the walls of Jerusalem. These walls are Titus' main problem. Jerusalem is built on a hill and surrounded by three fortified walls, each stronger than the other. To breach such a wall, Titus must raise huge earthen ramps and bring up siege towers and battering rams to breach it. In excavations conducted in Jerusalem, in the Russian compound, remains of the third wall have been found. It is the outer wall of the ancient city. We have here testimony to the battle. We found more than 70 catapult stones right here at the front of the wall. So that we know, a battle took place here. The number and density of the catapult stones and their locations are basically the testimony that there was a battle here during the Roman period, dated according to the potsherds. The evidence enabled us to conclude that we are dealing with a section of the third wall through which the Romans penetrated Jerusalem. With these huge catapult stones, Titus' soldiers bombarded the Jewish defenders, thus ensuring that they would not disturb the builds of the ramping. Each of these stones weighs about 26 kilograms and flew at a speed of tens of kilometers per hour. When a stone like this crashed into the wall, it was better not to be there. 
Under heavy artillery cover, the iron rams climbed to the top of the wall and pierced it. The noise is deafening. The largest battering ram of all, nicknamed Nikon, the victor, was the first to breach the wall. soldiers burst into Beit Zeta neighborhood. They slaughter the residents without mercy and set the entire neighborhood on fire. Within a few days, the second wall also falls. The Jewish defenses begin to disintegrate. Titus renews the attack and advances his soldiers to the internal wall, the strongest wall of Jerusalem, known as the First Wall. He concentrates most of his efforts here at the Antonia Fortress. The Antonia is the largest, strongest fortress in Jerusalem. It was built by Herod to the north of the Temple Mount in order to control the temple. Titus' plan was well thought out. The moment the Antonia falls, the temple will fall. And when the temple falls, the Jews will lose all hope and Jerusalem will finally fall into his hands. But nothing prepared him for what happens next. In a daring action, the soldiers of John of Giscala succeed in digging a tunnel under the earthen ramp opposite the Antonia, setting fire to its foundations and toppling it together with the soldiers to the ground. At the same time, Simon Bargiora attacks the ramp opposite the first wall and sets it on fire. Hundreds of Roman soldiers are killed and wounded. All at once, the Roman attack is halted and the entire Roman army is driven out of the city. Stunned by the failure, Titus gathers his commanders urgently and decides to change tactics. If it is not possible to break into the city, he will surround it from without and starve the Jews to death. In a record time of only three days, Titus builds a giant siege wall around Jerusalem, a choke ring seven kilometers long that effectively blocks off all supply lines. Now, starvation sets in to cruelly afflict the city. Affluent people scour the gutters to find scraps of food, and small children whose parents have starved to death wander the streets in search of a piece of bread. The tension in the city grows. Those who are left with a little food eat in secret. Others try to evade the zealots and escape from the city. Most of those who try to flee are caught by the Romans and crucified on wooden beams around the city walls. Fatigue and starvation weaken the Jewish fighters. This is Titus' chance to deal the crushing blow to Jerusalem. The Roman army is concentrated on one task, to conquer Antonia Fortress and break through to the temple. The Jews tried to prevent the capture of the Temple Mount and sabotage the building of the ramps. They shot flaming arrows, threw giant stones, and poured boiling oil on the head of the Roman soldiers. In the Temple Mount sifting project, iron arrowheads were found. 
These arrowheads were used for catapult fire. Catapults are machines for shooting arrows, and they bombarded the walls with such force that even the bravest of the Jewish fighters could not withstand. soldiers gained control of the Antonia. On the 17th of Tammuz, Titus commands them to destroy the mighty citadel down to its foundations. This day, on which according to tradition, the city was breached, is commemorated as a day of mourning on the Jewish calendar. The temple service ceased completely, and during the following three weeks, the days between the straits, the Jews would struggle in bloody face-to-face -face battles in the courtyards of God's temple. The battering rams breached the western walls of the Temple Mount. Ladders are leaned against the remains of the wall, and the Roman soldiers stream in mass into the temple courtyard. It seems that the campaign is drawing to a close, but what happens next is totally inconceivable. When the Jews realize that the temple is in real danger, they shake off all feelings of hunger and weakness. Thousands of citizens, women, men, elders and youth, everyone who can hold a weapon, join the fighters. Together, as one man, they fall upon the Romans and block the way to the temple with their bodies. Only one weapon can beat the fire of faith that burns in the hearts of the Jewish fighters, the burning fire of torches. And thus, on the night of the 9th of Av, Titus sets fire to the gates that surround the Temple Mount. On their way to the temple, the Romans burst through, killing, stabbing, and trampling everyone in their path. The blood flows on the colorful stone floors of the Temple Mount as bodies of the slain pile high. The flames quickly spread and approach the entrance to the temple. A moment before it goes up in flames, Titus gathers his commanders for a final consultation to determine the fate of the temple. Josephus claims that Titus opposed destroying the temple, which in his eyes was the glory of human creation. According to Josephus, the fire was caused by accident by a Roman soldier who inadvertently tossed a burning torch into the sanctuary. But most scholars do not believe this is really true. The anger over the many casualties caused by the Jews and the understanding that as long as the temple stood, the Jews would continue to fight, decided the temple's fate. Let them see and fear. On the 9th of Av, towards evening, Titus gave the order, and the following day, the 10th of Av, his soldiers set fire to the sanctuary. The temple that had been the source of inspiration, faith, ethics and righteousness for the Jewish people and all humanity for centuries now went up in flames. The cries of pain of the Jews rose up to the heavens. Titus commands the burning of the lower city. In the upper city, the rebels continue to fight stubbornly for another month until the Romans take control of it too and set it ablaze. The charred remains of fire and destruction discovered by Professor Nachman of God in what was once an opulent neighborhood 
tell the story of the complete destruction of Jerusalem. Chilling testimony to the last moments of the city is found here, between layers of ruins and ashes. The severed arm of a young woman with a spear alongside it. It appears that she too was unable to escape to the rebels' final refuge, the underground drainage channel. We're inside the drainage channel where the rebels hid 2,000 years ago. The last of the Jerusalem residents hid in this tunnel, here, where we stand. Suffocating darkness and terrible fear surrounded them. The Romans searched for them, found them, broke through the ceiling of the tunnel, and killed everyone. Among the finds discovered here that testified to the horror was this Roman sword, the Roman gladius, found on the tunnel floor. Nearby were cooking pots, clay lamps, and coins of the revolt, with the Hebrew words, Herut Zion, freedom for Zion, two words that expressed the heartfelt aspiration of the Jews who hid and were killed here in the drainage channel in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It is possible that the death of these people in the depths of the ground was preferable to the horrors suffered by their brethren who were taken captive. The prisoners were sold into lifelong slavery or died in blood sport, fighting against wild animals and gladiators. In pain, shock, and sorrow, the Jewish prisoners are marched through the streets of Rome. And before them go the spoils of war from Jerusalem, the golden menorah, and the holy vessels of the temple. Rome celebrates its victory with a parade, with huge monuments and a special coin that glorifies and commemorates the suppression of Judea. Jerusalem, weeping and mourning, descends under layers of ash and destruction. After five years of persistent struggle against the strongest empire in the world, the second temple is destroyed. Well, I hope you found that interesting. Uh, you can see videos like that on YouTube. If you just go to youtube.com and type in destruction of Jerusalem, there are others that are longer and more involved and more detailed. But you see now the reason Jesus mourned for the city of Jerusalem. He knew that this was coming. He knew that it was the transition period of an age. The Old Testament had come to an end. Uh, temple worship had come to an end. The priesthood had come to an end because everything was going to transition to the New Testament, the New Covenant. Uh, Jesus Christ, no longer the uh, rules and regulations of the Old Testament. But uh, another lesson that we can learn from this is when Jesus prophesies something, it is going to come to pass. So we need to read his word with a great deal of respect and all the prophecy of the Bible because there are many prophecies that still are in the future that uh, we need to take seriously. So we'll continue on in our study of the Olivet Prophecy because he continues on talking about the end time next time. So uh, 
Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, helping us to see the historical proof of the Bible. And uh, we understand a little bit more clearly now why Jesus mourned for the city of Jerusalem. And just as they rejected him, you rejected the city. And we see the destruction that, ca that came in because of that. And Father, we, we just thank you, Father, that you watch over us every day. And uh, we know that you don't leave us or forsake us because of Jesus Christ and who we are through Jesus Christ, children of yours. But Father, we understand that there are even more fearful times ahead. And Father, we just give you thanks for the protection you provide for us and the promises that you provide and, and maintain for us. So thank you, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.